Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This program is sponsored by Amplified Peace. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Amplify Peace. We are all about exploring how we can listen, learn, and live differently in this crazy world. Together, we want to discover the impact of empathy, the strength of unity, the power of love, and the beauty of humanity. I'm your host, Lisa Jernigan, and you are actually listening into part two of a conversation that began with uh, my guest, Sammy DePasquale, who is the founder and director of Abara Ministries in El Paso, Texas. And um, Sammy, again, I want to welcome you to part two. We, our first conversation, I'm just listening and going, we need more. We need more. We need to learn more from you. And the work we do with Amplified Peace and even the work we do at our church, there's so much connection and um, and shared mindset and value of how do we truly show up as peacemakers? How do we see all people? How do we work for the um, for justice and for equality for all people? And so in this space, you are doing significant work and you involve the sense of place of where your office is actually located. And you kind of walked us through that a little bit. You walked us through a little bit of your own history growing up in the Middle East and so um, as we continue part two, I want to talk about the realities of today. So give us a little bit for those that may not have listened to part one, which we really want to encourage you. He, Sammy goes into great detail of historical narrative, goes back 500 years of different people groups and just the emerging of even um, the land that we call the United States in the Southwest portion and how that kind of came to be. So highly encourage you to listen to his story and to the realities of the past 500 years and that sense of place in El Paso. But give us a quick overview, and then let's talk about the realities of today. So again, welcome to part two. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, so in our earlier conversation, I think I'd shared about in my childhood and young adult years and really through life, sort of a lot of the stories of displacement that I found myself um, on the edge of, or in community with people who had been displaced and journey to El Paso and to El Paso being here 20 years now and uh, just sort of finding coming across this property that sits right on the U.S.-Mexico border fence and the histories that converge on this one property that sits right at the beginning of this little um, pass through the mountains where the Rio Grande cuts through the mountains and then the, the the bringing together of history at that point, just because of the nature of it being a ford on the river through this pass in the mountains. And so you've got the stories that intersect there from Native American communities to the Spanish colonization, to Mexican independence, to U.S. westward expansion, to the, to the presence of slaves working, uh, African-American slaves on the property working at the mill um, that was there to, you know, sort of Wild West. Um, and I don't even know if I mentioned, but just cowboys and Buffalo soldiers. Um, and then the presence of these railways that were built with Chinese labor 
And all of this history, even just leading us to 1881, not even talking about the last 140 years. So I think today we're going to talk more about um, maybe what's happening in more recent years. Yes, yes. And, you know, I'm sitting in Arizona. And so a lot of what you're saying, I, we can relate to. Um, and you, the border, and, and that term is used a lot. You turn on the, you know, almost every day on the news, it's the border. And what's happening, and then and a border closing, and there's a chaos at the border, and there's unprecedented numbers coming through the border this day and daily. And so we're bombarded with that even in Arizona. It's part of our story. Um, and what is significant, like you talked about, it's like, now we want to talk about the realities of today. You made a comment when you and I were just talking off off air about we we think about the border as the problem, but we also think about the border as the solution. Can you expand on that and say why that's really not an accurate way to frame it or to see that? Yeah, I think you know th- these kind of these kind of issues and, and trying to understand them. Of course, people sit in for years or their whole life, so it's hard to think through in a really short period of time. But I think you know what we ha- what happens at the border because it's this dividing line between countries. Um, we end up seeing these juxtapositions that, you know, what comes together and what this flashpoint essentially. And so we can visibly see the manifestation of a whole lot of deeper issues. Of course, when we, when we're, you know, in a, in a society right now in a time period where we want, you know, smaller and smaller sound bites and smaller and smaller solutions and sound bites, you know, as both the problem and the solution. Um, it's very, it becomes very difficult. What ends up happening is it's very easy to say the border is the problem, for instance, build a wall. So the border is the problem, and then on the other, the solution is build a wall. Oh, that was easy, right? And it plays into our deeper fears of, of, of who we are and our fear of the other. And if we can frame the other in, uh, <clears throat> as someone to be afraid of who might be wanting to come um, in a dangerous fashion and take what, you know, what I think is mine or, um, invade, then it's very easy to feel like, okay, then we, we got to come up with a solution to stop this. But, uh, I mean, the, the complexities of root causes of why people would end up at the border are really what we should be talking about. And, and those are so deep. And of course, I think are wound up in history. Um, and, and I mean, we can, you know, so when we, in one of our, uh, sessions that we have when we host border encounters or these three-day opportunities for people to come visit and listen and learn and reflect and try to discern how to move forward in their own lives and communities. So, um, we have a whole session on, we call it glo- you know, global migration and Central American root causes, for instance, and we talk through realities on the ground. What are the challenges on the ground in some of the countries that are experiencing displacement? And it might be war, it might be famine, right? Or, you know, like just not enough food, um, desperation, economic issues, or it could be targeted violence because of being part of a certain community. Um, like, for instance, my my ancestor who came from Sicily a hundred and some years ago, I thought at a certain point realized, whoa, you know, my great grandfather was an unaccompanied minor. He was 14 years old, sent by his family across the ocean in desperation in search of something new, right? No one sends their kid um, alone into the unknown 
if there are better options, right? And right. so I like what we need to think about what is that what what's happening and why would why would someone be in that situation? Um, and so we look at all these confluence of factors, whether it's gang violence or cartel issues. Um, some of it's related to what's happening in the U.S. too, like drug consumption in the U.S. provides the funding that goes to the cartels that are fueling a lot of the challenges that then end up displacing people to come to the U.S. So you have this cyclical, mm-hmm. this cyclical issues, right? Or it could be uh, even even our domestic policies, for instance, our immigration policies. If we end up deporting somebody, a lot of times that's not a story of an individual. That individual maybe who was working here was supporting an extended family. All of a sudden, it's a story of a, of a family or a community that's impacted. Um, or our foreign policies, the way we have maybe been involved historically, for instance, in Central America, we can see very clearly how um, what we thought was in our best interests, maybe 50, 70 years ago, and the way we, or not even, you know, even 30 or 40 years ago, and we could see echoes of that to today, um, just the way we've intervened in some of uh, um, the governments in Central America and displaced governments and put in, put in place um, those that we thought were aligned with our interests, but they were not who was voted in by the population. And in like for in Guatemala, that whole situation led to a civil war that lasted 36 years. And you could see these domino effects from U.S. intervention to civil war, to people fleeing, to some of the, the issues that happen today. It's not like a singular root cause. It's one of many root causes, right? So we try to explore all these issues and we think, well, if these are the, if that's the root of these challenges, then, then, then the, the, for instance, building a secure border isn't going to solve any of these bigger issues. It's just going to be, you know, it's going to be dealing with a symptom of something much broader. And so we're constantly trying to delve into those issues right now, I think in our context. Well, you know, what you're saying is, is um, what we believe so many times, you know, when it comes to engaging in peacemaking work and in different narratives and cultures, there's always a bigger story. But we fail to see it because we just see just this limited scope. We have this tunnel vision of it. And we're not curious enough, perhaps, or maybe it's too overwhelming to know more. And so we choose to stay, keep it small and and a quick solution, like build a, build a wall or do this or do that without taking into account, like you said, the larger narrative, going back to what is causing people to flee a country and when you talked about your grandfather, who would send a 14-year-old across the ocean unknown unless you were in a dire situation? But we're not thinking about what's happening that would cause families to send loved ones or children and make them extremely vulnerable for the sake of a better life. Like how how bad does it have to get, right? And we don't think in, in those terms. So um, I think I think we need to to be a little more curious as we look at some of these challenges and these issues. And I know here in Arizona, we talk about borders and how a lot of times, like even, you know, in the Middle East and in Africa, a lot of their like land borders happened after World War II. Like what, you know, borders change, border lines with countries change. And when they do, a lot of times they split tribes and cultures and families and people groups. And we saw that in Arizona, Native Americans on both sides, when they drew the line with Mexico and Arizona, they divided families, they divided tribes, they divided cultures. 
And we don't see that. So you have the same families living two different, two different countries now that were once living together. And so just even the ramifications of that, what does that mean? How do we go forward? Um, can you talk to us a little bit? Because I think a lot of times we hear terms and we're, we think we know what they mean, but we don't really understand the depth or the meaning to them. So, for example, we hear uh, an immigrant, an immigrant story. Um, they're an immigrant or we hear um, they're seeking asylum um, or then there's refugees. And also when we see the news almost daily here, um, I think even nationally, you see people lined at the border right? People groups. And so you're not sure, like, what is their story? What are they really trying to do? And why are they there? Can you give light to some of that for us explaining the difference and why certain people are coming, how they're coming, and and what their objective is? Because you see them sitting there. It's not pleasant. Who wants to wade through a river? Who wants to sit with plastic? Or I mean, it's we don't understand, like, the desperation sometimes. We just see the threat of them to us. And so how do we see their humanity and see them in light of that? So can you just just enlighten us with that? Yeah, I'll, I'll attempt to respond to that with, uh, I guess, starting maybe with the differences of, of with those definitions. So I think like, I mean, people will define it a little bit differently in terms of immigrant, but essentially an immigrant could be anybody who is moving from where they have historically lived to somewhere new, right? Um, and sometimes you say migrants, immigrants, and you could find technical definitions that might be a little bit differently, different. But it might, it could be for any reason. Mm-hmm. Now, when when someone's a refugee, um, it, we got technical language around that after World War II, um, and we started refugee programs in sort of some of the countries, and that's when someone has been forcibly displaced from their country because of fear of death um, or violence to them. Um, And if they returned to their country, there would be a fear of death. It could be because of war. It could be because of targeted violence, because of ethnicity, um, religion, or part of a a certain, a certain group, like a community group. It's a tight definition. It's hard to prove sometimes, except in situations of outright war. Um, so a refugee could be anyone who fled their country because of that route. An asylum seeker would be someone who is a refugee who is then arriving at your border or has flown in and is saying, I would like to seek asylum in your country because I fled this situation in my home country. And in the U.S., you, you go through, there's a lot of burden of proof and you have a series of court cases. And that's what's gotten so backlogged because so many people are are, are trying to pursue these asylum cases. So um, we also have a refugee resettlement program in the U.S., which is basically um, that's that's been around for quite a while, for decades. And uh, that could be, for instance, say someone because of the Syrian civil war has fled to Jordan and they're in a refugee camp and they say, I want to apply to be a refugee. Usually the process is the U.N. would would sort of vet their case and then maybe proclaim them a refugee then they would have the opportunity to apply through refugee resettlement programs through different countries. There's no, there's no promise that they would get to whatever country they wanted. It's just sort of like, I would, I'm open to going somewhere. And then the U.S. has a program that says every year it's a different number, and usually that's out of the president's office saying what that number is. Um, and so they could 
uh, say if they're in that refugee camp, maybe the U.S. then approves a certain number of people, and it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the world's refugees. And they would actually have been pre-approved and gone through a pretty severe vetting process before arrival on U.S. soil. But once they arrive, they've essentially already gone through that same process that an asylum seeker would. But the asylum seeker has arrived on U.S. soil saying, I want to seek asylum. The refugee has gone through that process overseas and has already gone through the process and arrives with the possibility of a path towards permanent residency. So that's sort of some of the differences. Um, in terms of people arriving on the U.S. border, uh, we see people from dozens of countries, but usually in large portions from certain countries, and you'll see waves from different places. And it really wasn't, that we didn't have people arriving in significant numbers seeking asylum till the last decade or so. And it really started with Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and, and a big, big reasons of fleeing were, were violence from gangs um, or cartels or these multinational criminal organizations as Border Patrol or others will call them because to point to the sophistication of these groups, these aren't street gangs. They're highly sophisticated. This is a business model. The business model is usually involved um, smuggling illicit items, but then started involving smuggling people. And now smuggling people has almost become a, more of a profit center than mm -hmm. smuggling items, but it's definitely up there with it. And so, um, and now that's almost the only pathway to get to the, the border. For instance, I've been in, in, you know, well, I won't mention any of the crossings, but even ones in Arizona where it's like you have, you have people watching to make sure, like from the cartels, watching to make sure no no one is arriving from the south to the U.S.-Mexico border without paying them because they want to control access to the to the, the border and make money off of it. Um, and ironically, I mean, I was just we were just meeting with an FBI agent locally who's high up and involved with cross-border issues here. He was basically saying the more we focus on the security at the border and it's harder Essentially, we there's a it strengthens the hands of the cartels because all of a sudden they have more of a case to say you have no option to get into the U.S. except through us, and all of a sudden they're making more money. One of his options that he gave you was like, why doesn't the U.S. come up with a system where we could say, okay, if they're going to pay a cartel ten thousand dollars, why not have a system where it's like, hey, you could pay ten thousand dollars to pursue a legal case in the U.S. And he had all these different ideas of how that could happen. So. Um, many people are coming through cartels. If they're coming from South America, because now we have high numbers from Venezuela, especially, and some from Colombia or Ecuador. Um, but they've come through the Darien Gap, and they have walked so far, and they've, you know, they've been on a month-long journey, and they've gone through the Darien Gap, this jungle region that, that, that in this tiny little um, right strip that connects Colombia and Panama. And they've been in there for a week or 10 days. And, and many have seen friends or people in their group who have died in that situation. So you have a traumatic source experience co combined with the trauma of the journey. And some have been abducted along the way or, or had family members killed along the way or sexually assaulted on the way. Um, and so you're arriving with a whole lot of trauma and you get to the to the U.S. border. And a lot of times it's just like, I don't even care what I have to go through. I just want the opportunity to present my case and seek asylum. Now, the, the, there is, you know, there are those who are not going to, they don't actually meet the technical definition of asylum. Like starving, like not enough, having enough food 
to eat or enough money to live is does not qualify you for asylum. And for those that are in that situation, they're not going to get it and they're going to get returned to their own country. But for those that do have a case, then they might go through. But for instance, I was just with the government agency in the state of Chihuahua, our neighbor city in Mexico, that deal, and it's this agency that deals with issues of migration in, in, in Mexico, in that state. And they said right now, like anyone from Mexico who's trying to seek asylum right now, actually anyone in the border, they're getting the, the return rate is 98%. 98%. 98 out of 100 people are just returned to Mexico. It's not a, a high number. It's much higher for some, currently for some of the countries that um, that, ha- that are experiencing issues because of their political situation, like Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. If you think of those three countries that are more socialist and have aligned more on an opposite side of sort of the Cold War than us or post-Cold War, we see higher levels of acceptance from those countries because we're recognizing, hey, we don't agree with the root causes of what you're fleeing either. But if it's someone who's an ally of ours, we have a harder time accepting someone um, for asylum because we'd be recognizing that they're sort of our ally isn't in a great space and can't take care of their own citizens. So those are some of the complexities. I don't know if I really got it. Yes. Well, I, don't, I think a, a lot of times because we don't understand or um, haven't been educated enough to know, um, we just we make assumptions and we form opinions that are not necessarily grounded. We all do that, right? Uh, with lack of knowledge, we kind of fill in the blanks. But you know, how do we become students? How do we really posture ourselves as learners to learn? Like what you're just saying, all the different dynamics to it. It's not. It's not simple. And it's not just what you see. There's so much more that is unseen that is part of that. And how do we make, in many ways, the invisible visible so we know really what what we're dealing with? And it's hard to create viable solutions when you're not really dealing with the real problems, right? You're trying to create Band-Aids, and that's not what we need. Um, in the few minutes we have left, this seems overwhelming. You you hear all of this, and, and you're up against the cartel, and you're it just... There's a lot of evil in this. So people in the faith community, churches, what do you say to 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 us? Um, how does how does a person that's sitting listening to this podcast, what do you want them to know? What what is a step they can do? Um, whether it's just being more informed, if it is, where do they go? What do they do? How does how should the church respond in this? How how do we be the hands and feet of Jesus in times like this. And I know I just asked a lot. So whatever you want to answer there, but just address somebody sitting here listening to this podcast. What do you want them to know? What's something they can do? There's so many layers to that in terms of the sort of the meaningful action we can move into. And the most basic one maybe is how do we humanize the other? Who have we created in our own hearts and souls and minds and communities as the other? Is it a different ethnic group? language group, religious group, and what are the dualistic narratives that we are perpetuating or at least absorbing about my side is right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're evil. That's the easy way to approach it, and I think that's what Jesus was constantly pulling the Jewish community out of, and it's a massive part of the heart of Jesus is this like this inclusion, this radical inclusion of humanity, and the search for how do we seek the well-being 
of others, like as evidenced by the, the Good Samaritan story, for instance, right? Like where you have the religious leader, right, trying to define and trying to justify who he's supposed to care about. Who is my neighbor then? Okay, I'm supposed to love God. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I know that. So who is my neighbor? And he's trying to, he's trying to, you know, lock Jesus in. And then the story that Jesus chooses to tell is basically the story of the enemy who takes care of the insider. So the outsider takes care of the insider. And then he poses the question, who was the neighbor in that situation? He said, of course, the the one who helped. He's like, go and do that. So it's very clear what Jesus tells us to do in terms of when we see someone who is suffering, um, how do we interact with that person? How do we love them? And how do we stand in the gap? And it doesn't matter. It doesn't, even if we can't see a way forward, we know what we're to do in this one situation. Of course, we want to see a way forward and we want to deal with these deeper, deeper issues and we want to listen and learn and absorb and understand um, and not just deal with the band-aids. But, uh, you know, at the outset, we can love our neighbors very directly um, and tangibly. And then we, I think we seek to understand the root causes and the underlying systems maybe that are supporting um, um, some of the ways that we aren't doing that. So how do we how do we advocate for for changes? So those I would say are a, a few of the a, a few ways we can move forward as followers of Jesus. But like I love what you said just about curiosity. I think Jesus is constantly calling people in through the parables, especially. You see a kernel of truth in a parable, and you're are you drawn to it and seek more, or do you just ignore it and harden your heart? Right. So when you see that bit of truth and beauty and goodness and love and you recognize the heart of God, do you move towards it to learn more? You don't know all the answers, but do you keep moving towards it, towards it, towards it? Or do you harden your heart and say, I don't want to, I don't want to see that. And I think that's a lot of what Jesus was exploring with his disciples and those around him as well. And that's such a great way to end this. I appreciate you so much, the work you're doing, your heart, and um, that you're in the trenches with this. And I think it is how do we even pray differently? How do we see people differently through the, the heart and the eyes of Jesus? Well, as always, thanks for being part of this podcast in the Amplify Peace community. For more information on living as a peacemaker in today's world, connect with us at AmplifyPeace.com. And you can follow us on all social media. Shalom. This program was sponsored by Amplified Peace.